everybody's looking for the key to success to help them grow, to become more successful. You're not going to find it in a sales book. You're not going to find it in a marketing book, a book on competitive advantage, a book on strategy, a book on innovation. No, it's going to be an understanding how to build mental toughness, resiliency. That's what you need. That it's a set up, not a setback. Because I refuse to allow a negative circumstance to dictate my life. You think it's actually going to work out that way. (laughs) Here's the thing that you don't understand. Is that it's never going to beat me down. It's never going to defeat me. I'm never going to allow this to beat me. Because life doesn't happen to me. It happens for me. There are demons all around us. Demons in the form of fear. Anxiety, guilt, depression, sadness, bullying, learned helplessness, negativity. And if we allow these demons to control us, we will only continue to lose the battle on mental health. It's time for us to cut the crap from our lives and go on offense against these demons by building mental toughness and resiliency. That's why you're here. My name is Ryan Caligiuri, and welcome to the Cut the Crap Show. What is going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining yours truly, Ryan Caligiuri, on this week's episode of the Cut the Crap Show, where every single week, you know what I'm doing. I'm reading a book, condensing that book down to its core golden nuggets. I'm bringing the author on the show to have a conversation about the golden nuggets, and I'm here with you every single week, just trying to save you a little bit of time, bring you some information that can spark real change in your life, and I'm here trying to help you build mental toughness and resilience every single week. So I just got to say, first and foremost, thank you to... All of you who reached out to me last week with videos, text messages, emails, just messages on social media, sharing your thoughts with me and your support in my my journey to share CY8 with the world. And last week, for all you who follow me on LinkedIn, if you're not following me on LinkedIn, just look me up, give me a follow on there. I shared a video on there that was pretty raw after I posted it. Kind of looked in my hands and said like, oh man, what are you doing? Why would you post that? But I'm glad I did because the amount of discussion that was generated from that was was truly awesome. Um, long story short, for those of you who did not see the video who aren't following me on LinkedIn, one of my clients brought me in to work with their sales team and a member of that sales team that I met very briefly committed suicide. And I took that really hard on myself because if only I had gotten there a little bit earlier, if only I had got there sooner, I would have been able to help. And people ask what I would have done to help. Well, first and foremost, if I would have found out that they were sitting at a one, I would have called 911 right there. If they were suicidal and they needed supervision, I would have called 911. And I would have gotten them the help that they needed. I'm not a therapist. I'm not going to diagnose them. I'm not going to tell them they're clinically depressed. That's not my job. It's not my specialty. It's not what I do. I created the CY method to help people get a better understanding of their mindset, of how they're feeling when they wake up, and then putting in place certain coping strategies, different mechanisms to help them get back on track, help them create their eight every single day. It's not easy, but it starts with self-awareness and understanding where your mind is going on a regular basis and kind of taking you off autopilot, short-circuiting your patterns. And that's what I do. And so that's why I take it a little bit hard because if only I would have gotten there a little bit earlier, i Probably could have saved someone's life, and I wasn't. So it's one of those things where early on in my career, I'm 
something big happened and I'm never going to forget this. And every day when I get a little bit tired, when I feel like just kind of going easy for a little bit, or maybe I feel like I've maybe helped a lot of people and I just kind of want to take a break, whatever it is, I'm just going to think about this moment and know that there's a lot of people out there who need help and who need to increase their awareness of their mindset and what they can do to help them create their eight. So in any case, it's a very long-winded kind of explanation about what happened, but I just want to share that with all of you because it was a really impactful piece to my week last week, and um, I know that all of you are kind of on this journey with me, and you bought into me, you bought into what I'm doing, so thank you so much for listening to me, and thank you to all of you for your support. It means truly means a lot to me. All right, so uh, well, actually on that same vein of support, I also have to say a big thank you to so many of you who have supported me on Patreon already. So for those of you who don't know what Patreon is, Patreon is a platform that was created to support people like myself, artists, podcasters, creators. And if you love what I'm doing here, if you love the the show, you love the work that I'm putting in, you love me, my enthusiasm, if I'm adding value to your life, then you can support me by going to thecutthecrapshow.com. And at the very top, there's a bright red button that says support Ryan and the show through Patreon for $5 a month. Essentially, for the price of a cup of coffee, you can support me, and that means a whole hell of a lot. I received a whole bunch of patrons last week, and it's so awesome to see so many of you donate five bucks a month. All that money I'm going to be giving to causes that I support, and this year I really want to give back to some no-kill animal shelters that truly need some support, some funding. And it's my way of just creating more goodness in this world where I'm trying to add value to your life. And at the same time, you're adding value to my life through support. It makes me happy. And then together, we can all add value to causes that truly need some help. And we can do our part um, to really support the world and support good people who are doing great things. And that's our way of kind of bringing positive energy back into the world. And that's, that's all I really want to focus on. So thank you so many of you. I have not given you my personal message yet to all of you, but it's going to come. Don't you worry. Every single person that uh, joins the $5 a month club, you're going to get a personal greeting from me and daily text messages from me of videos, content, whatever through WhatsApp. And it's going to be content that essentially is going to maybe help you start your day off. If you're starting at a five, put you on to a six and kind of start you off on the right note. So any case, if you want to donate there, that would be fantastic. I really appreciate that too. But enough jibber jabber. What are we? We're five minutes into this. Oh my God. Five minutes in. Okay. Let's get into this one. So this week we're talking to Kate Swoboda about her book, The Courage Habit, how to accept your fears, release the past and live your courageous life. Now this one's really important to me because this one deals directly with that demon, that demon of fear. And fear is... It's a tricky one because sometimes we don't even recognize it. Fear is in disguise a lot of the times and we don't see it. But yet the decisions that we make, the actions that we take are based in fear. And we don't know it. We don't know it. And that to me is the most scariest thing because when you don't recognize it and you're acting with fear, you can't become great. You can't overcome massive challenges in your life. You can't achieve that big goal. And so having somebody who can help you recognize fear, help you deal with it, and help you become more courageous, man, that's, that's something I want to learn about. So that's something that Kate specializes in, and I was just really excited to bring her on the show. So let's crack right into this one, and uh, let's get Kate introducing herself to us and telling us a little bit about who she is and what she does. 
So Kate Swoboda, also sometimes known as Kate Courageous, several (laughs) social media profiles with that. Uh, I am a life coach. And um, I know that in the industry, life coaching, they run the gamut um, of people who watched a couple videos over the weekend, and then those who actually trained for it like it is, you know, a craft and I fall in the latter category. I've been a coach for more than a decade, worked with people from all walks of life. And my particular place that where I really like to hang out is looking at what is it that happens for someone when they have big vision and they get stuck in their fear. So not so much phobia, that's a different you know, discipline if you're going to look at fear, but really how do we get caught in emotional fear and how can we apply practices of courage. And then my work took a very interesting turn when I began doing research um, and came to discover that there's something of a science to behavioral courage and it's based in habits. And so the courage habit is all about that. How do we look at literally how your brain constructs and reinforces habits and how do we determine which of those habits are fear-based habits that keep us stuck, which of course we want to, you know, let go of those, Mm -hmm. change those. And how do we identify emotionally resilient, courageous behaviors and create courageous habits instead? Because of course, the more you're practicing courageous habits, the more you are going to be living a courageous life. Ah, there we go. That's what I want to hear. This book is going to give you some tactical things that you can do to combat fear. So now in the context of CY8, where you look at your day on a scale of 1 to 10, when you're sitting at like a 4 or a 3 or a 2 or a 1, or even if you're sitting at a 5, 6 or 7 and you're trying to get yourself to your 8, if you're trying to create your 8, but you have this fear inside of you, how do you deal with that? This is what the Cut the Crap Show is all about. It's designed to give you stimulus to help you find the right coping strategies, find the right tactics to help you create your 8. So it's my hope. That within this book, within some of the stimulus that Kate shares with us, that you're going to find maybe one or two things that you can use to defeat the demon of fear. So we kick this off with golden nugget number one, where we talk about two writing exercises that you might want to consider in your journey to helping you create your eight. And she calls these two writing exercises the liberated day and honoring the value of courage. Hmm. Well, I like... Uh, You know, in the coaching industry, there's a lot of emphasis placed by most coaches on setting goals and establishing metrics. And I think that goal setting is only as useful as a tool as it can be a guide, Mm -hmm. because if you get too rigidly attached to it, then you are not likely to make a lot of room for the spontaneity and the joy and the journey and the mistakes and all of the things that are actually very human. Um, but the Courage Habit book is actually framed to, to pattern itself after the way I w- might work with a client. Mm-hmm. So at the outset of working with a client, I do want to have some idea of what their life would look like if they were outside of their current paradigm, if they're moving into the most successful, or as I call it, the most courageous self that they want to live as. And what does that look like? So liberated day is like, and it starts with the first question, if you woke up mm-hmm. tomorrow and your entire life went exactly the way you wanted it to go from morning until night. What would that day look like? Mm-hmm. And on the worksheet that I provide, that's a book bonus. There are only three lines there. But the idea is you you actually rock that out. Like mm-hmm. I wake up in the morning and I am well rested. 
There's no way I've been tossing and turning. I am looking forward to the day. I am grateful to be alive. I take a deep breath. I get out of bed. I stretch. I, you know, like really detailed. Hmm. And it goes from there talking about rituals to guide your morning and the work that you would do and what would you be doing in the evening. And this exercise, as with most exercises in the book, what's most important is not somehow wrapping yourself into this prescription for what a good life looks like. It's more like, what are the patterns? What are the things that seem to come up over and over? What do you notice? Because it's probably going to come up in more than one place. You take yourself with you wherever you go. Mm. And honoring the value of courage is a similar, um, has a similar sort of a goal. The honoring the value of courage is you take the different component parts of your life and get very reductive for just a moment. And like in money or your career or your family relationships or your romantic relationships, because, of course, those are different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if your most courageous self was calling the shots in this area, what would be happening in this area? And again, you start looking for the patterns. And I'll just give an example because I'm a big examples person. <laughs> um, when I began doing these sorts of exercises more than a decade ago, a big thing that emerged was that I, I highly value and want to feel and seek to set my life up for a feeling of freedom. I really don't like having obligations or constrictions that even shows up in my in my relationships, not necessarily with like um, freedom from, you know, marital commitment. Of I am course. married, <laughs> <laughs> but more like feeling free to be who I am, feeling free to make a mistake and know that we can work through it, um, feeling free to um, go with the flow of what relationship is instead of fulfilling a role. You know, so that's a lot of different ways of wow. thinking about it, but really looking at the patterns, what is coming up chronically mm-hmm. in your life and what comes up as a, a, a repetitive vision mm-hmm. that you seem to be drawn to over and over when you complete either the liberated day mm-hmm. or the honoring the value of courage worksheet. I love those two exercises, the liberated day and honoring the value of courage. They might not speak to you, particularly for me. They don't necessarily speak to me and I probably won't use that. But just because I don't use it, that doesn't mean that you're not going to use it. So if you use that as a tool to help you create your eight, what does the next step look like? So I had to understand from Kate, you know, somebody goes through this exercise, they write it up and they see their future state. They see where they want to go. They see what their their optimal life looks like. That's cool. You can write it down. But then what do you do? What's the next step? So I had to ask her what her experiences are with helping people once they write those exercises down, what the next step is to help them get there. Well, I think the next question I look at is where is fear getting in the way? Mm. Because I walk with and I train, you know, our people as well to, to go, you know, your clients aren't stupid. Like nobody who gets me on the phone who says, you know, I really want to improve my marriage is stupid. It's not like it hasn't occurred to them to go, you know what, uh, if I stop taking things personally, we might not fight so much. Mm. Nobody who's ever wanted to change their health and wellness has ever been like, you know, I'm not sure what's going on while they cram like <laughs> 10 donuts into their mouth, right? <laughs> like people aren't stupid and people actually need as part of this courage work we're doing to get these external results that can be seen. They need to do the internal work of learning to trust their intuition again. Mm. And that's that's a hallmark of courage, really being able to trust 
who you are, what you want, trust that everything is figure outable, even if you are an imperfect human being. And really, we're talking about the courage to have who you are on the inside be how you live on the outside and not have those be two separate things. So, you know, when somebody's going, like, I'm really far away from this. I did the honoring the value of courage worksheet and fun and recreation are so far away right now because of a multitude of factors. What we want to look at is, in particular, where's their fear? Because somebody somewhere in the world has figured out how to transcend any factor. Mm -hmm. So what's coming up for you that has you not transcend that fact, those factors. Mm. And certainly we also need to look at the whole person. We are not just isolated individuals. We live in a society. People definitely have challenges that are very real. It's not all mindset. I would never tell someone who is a person of color if they said a factor that's been inhibiting my success is racism. And I would never be like, it's just that way because you believe it. That's BS, okay? (laughs) That's not the case. We need to look at the whole person. So what are the fears that are coming up for this person in their life? What are the stories of limitation that they tell themselves How can we start to really look at the component parts of their experience of fear in the body, the mindset, the actions, the accountability, the the social, you know, roles that they that they fulfill as well as their connection? How do we look at the big picture and start going, what's it going to take for you to move forward? And we got to look at all these areas. This is why I really love this as a tool to help you create your eight, because by going through Kate's exercises, you're going to allow yourself the time to create your future state. I'm a very visual person, so follow me here for a second. We have two boxes. On the left-hand side, we have current state, and that's essentially where you are right now. That's your life right now. Then you have the future state, another box on the right-hand side, a big gap in the middle, and the future state is essentially what you just wrote down with these two exercises. Now in the middle, you have this line that points from the current state to the future state, In the middle, that is essentially the journey that you're going to go on to help you reach your future state. So as Kate says, listen, here's your current state. You just finished your future state. What do we do now? In the middle, that's where you figure out where your fears are coming in. What's holding you back from achieving that? Kate's saying a big piece to you not getting to your future state is fear. And I completely agree with her. If, for example, you're in debt and your future state is to be debt free, What's holding you back? Maybe fear of hard work. Maybe fear of rejection from clients. Fear of making mistakes. Fear of taking up too much time. Fear of losing your health. Oh my God, if I have to work so hard, am I going to have enough time to work out? Am I going to have enough time to spend with my family? The fear of guilt. There's so much fear involved. And so a big piece to you creating your eight and you getting to that future state is you understanding where fear is holding you back. And having that self-awareness inside to say, okay, I know where fear is holding me back. And once I've identified that demon, I now recognize that demon because fear is kind of invisible. We don't see it. Like I said at the very beginning, it's a very tricky demon that you can't really pinpoint it. But by using this exercise, it reveals the demon of fear to you. And once you recognize it, now you can deal with it. And when I say deal with it, it takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take days, weeks, months, years to deal with the fear but at least you know where fear is holding you back and you can slowly take steps to help you defeat that demon. So I love this as a kickoff to the episode 
because it's very tactical, very tactical and very, very useful. So if this is something that you can use, then absolutely put into place for yourself. So now let's get into golden nugget number two, where we talk about the brain and habits. Now, for anybody who follows me on Instagram, you know that my little sister, she's a neuroscientist up in New York City, working for Mount Sinai Hospital, and she's absolutely killing it, absolutely killing it up there. So we have great discussions about the brain and the brain's impact on building resilience and mental toughness. So anytime that I get an opportunity to talk to my sister about it or an author about different aspects of the brain and different research they found, I absolutely love it. So in regards to this golden nugget, Kate talks about something in the book she calls the Q routine reward cycle. And you use the Q routine reward cycle to help you change a habit. So I'm very interested in asking her about this one and going into a little bit more detail. So let's see what she has to say about this. Okay. So I, I love geeking out on this stuff. It's, <laughs> it's the best. Um, and I've, I've, I gotta say, I've, I've used habit formation in every area of my life, including, by the way, I have a four and a half year old and I, I learned this stuff a couple years ago. And like, you can even hack habit formation to like get your small child to go to bed without argument. It's true. I've done it. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the therapy bill on that is going to look like later, but no, I'm kidding. Um, so habits are, are predominantly operating from a place in the brain called the basal ganglia. And I like to make these things a little easier to understand by maybe personifying the parts of the brain a bit. Any neuroscientist who's listening to me right now is going to be like, this This is not how it works. But <laughs> I want to simplify it because most people are not neuroscientists. So habits, they run on this Q routine reward loop in the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia, I like to personify as being like the project manager of the brain. A lot of stuff is coming at it, sensory input and things like that. And the basal ganglia is trying to go, how do I make sense of this? And by the way, I don't want to be stressed out at all. And new stuff stresses me out. I really like referring to however I handled that problem before. Now, researchers have also found that approximately half of our behavior every single day is habitual. And we're not just talking about like brushing your teeth after you wake up, if that's your habit right after you wake up. We're also talking about like how you habitually respond if you're having an argument, how you habitually respond to people who get on your nerves or remind you of someone who raised you, who, you know, did something mean to you. We are operating behaviorally from a habit driven place all the time. So these habits run on a cue routine reward loop. There's a cue, which is like a trigger. There's a routine, which is the response to the trigger. And there's a reward. And the reward is anything that gets your brain feeling calmer. Mm. Because people will say to me, well, I don't, you know, you said sometimes habitually in arguments, you know, you might respond a certain way. I don't get it. You know, if there's a cue and I go into a routine, what, what reward am I getting of having this same argument with my partner, even though it's a different year? And here's how I'd frame that. The cue is the fear. Mm -hmm. The routine is whatever diminishes the fear. So if getting a pot shot in makes you feel temporarily just a little more in control, mm. that reward is you feel just temporarily a little more in control. <laughs> and your brain knows what to expect. It's been there before. It's a comfort zone. Mm. That's part of why it's so hard to get outside of a comfort zone. Because the brain really likes whatever it's depended on before. 
But that routine space is where we change things. Mm. You are never going to remove all the cues from your life. If you are a living, breathing human being, you will always have things that are challenges. And it's pretty normal to want the reward of less stress. Mm. So it's pretty difficult to try to get yourself not to want to feel less stress if you feel stressed. Mm. So my hypothesis is how do we look at the routine in the middle and instead of going into fear-based behaviors that just keep us stuck, how do we go, okay, I'm recognizing I'm triggered by fear right now. I want to choose an emotional and courage-based resilience strategy Mm. and that can be any of the four parts of what I call the courage habit. Now that we understand the Q routine reward cycle a little bit better, and if you don't quite grasp what it is, then maybe go back over it again and listen to it because it's really important. But something I'm very interested in, because I've mentioned this on the show before, is that we tend to live our lives on autopilot. And this autopilot is what I'm trying to get people out of with the CY8 by recognizing their demons and putting in place coping strategies, mechanisms, tactics to help you defeat the demons or gain greater control over that. Before we moved on to the next golden nugget, I had to ask Kate again a little bit more about different cues and what kind of behaviors we exhibit when fear is present. Because I believe that, again, raising awareness about fear is important and understanding maybe throughout your day when you start to become more self-aware and you look at what you do and the kind of thoughts you think and the actions you take If you can understand like, holy smokes, wait a second, I did that a number of times or I do that all the time. When you realize that, then you're going to know that fear is present. So again, just trying to raise awareness about what fear looks like is so important. So I had to ask Kate a little bit more information about what those specific behaviors, those cues look like. Mm -hmm. Well, first, um, people are pretty accustomed to their habituated ways of dealing with fear. There are three predominant ways that people typically regard their fear. Um, They either want to ignore it. That's like sticking your fingers in your ears and la, 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 I don't (laughs) see you, you know, Um, or they want to placate it, please it. That's probably something of a perfectionist pattern. Like if I can just do it right, my fear won't kick up. And then people want to attack it. And that's where we get into the memes on the Internet that are like, shut the F up. I told Mm. my fear to F off. And the problem is that none of those work long term. They can quiet that internalized critical voice of fear. Um, They can temporarily have you feel more in control, but they ultimately don't work. But because they have at least some efficacy and in the short term and people don't always know what to turn to, a big challenge is even getting people to be willing to deal with their fear differently. When I think about fear personally, I like to always put a face to it, put a name to it, like to recognize. That's why I call these things like anxiety and depression and fear and learn helplessness, guilt. I call them demons because I can see it. I can recognize it. So if you are looking at fear in the face and you're using those three ways to deal with fear, those weapons don't work. They just don't work. You can be throwing fists and kicks and whatever at that demon. That demon's going to take it right to the chin Turn back at you, look at you, and laugh and say, good luck, baby. I still got you. So there's better ways to deal with fear. And if you're using those three ways, you got to know that those are ineffective. So how can you deal with fear? I'll hold you in a little bit of anticipation because we're going to get to that in a little bit. 
But before we dig into the courage habit a little bit more, I want to understand the habitual fear routines. And that's golden nugget number three. There's four different habitual fear routines that I asked Kate to go into. We're going to go into them one by one. The first one, the perfectionist routine. And I know a lot of you entrepreneurs out there, ah, not even entrepreneurs, just everybody in general. A lot of you take pride in being perfectionists. I've worked with a lot of you. And I'm still working with a lot of you who believe that perfectionism is something that you value, something that you attach to your self-worth. And you take pride in that. But you got to know that that behavior of being a perfectionist is steeped in fear. (laughs) Um, Well, it's important to know all of these as people are listening. We all do all of them. Okay. Mm. It's just usually there's one that hooks you more than the rest. (laughs) And I, I started the book by talking about perfectionism because that's the one that hooks me the most. (laughs) So perfectionist routine is going to look like, you know, exceptionally high standards for yourself and for others. Um, You know, really pushing yourself going into patterns of overwork Um, you know, having these tendencies to, um, you know, when we talk about high standards, you know, we're not just talking about like pride in your accomplishment or pride in a job well done. We're talking about there's always more. And I once heard Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown, give um, a talk in which she talked about uh, or compared perfectionism to addictive patterns. Because the thing about perfectionism, she pointed out, is that it's not like you do something perfectly and then you're like, I feel good. I am really proud of myself. I'm, I'm, you know, it's like with perfectionism, it's like, oh, I want more. Mm. I need more. I need more. There should be more. So perfectionism is going to show up in those ways. Burnout is always (laughs) riding just on its coattails. And, um, you know, especially for people who have a lot of external accomplishments, but they don't feel fulfilled by any of that. I'd say look at your perfectionist, the possibility that you could have a perfectionist routine. Now, for all my perfectionists out there, you might have at maybe one point in time compared yourself to Steve Jobs. Maybe you didn't, but maybe you saw somebody like Steve Jobs and you said, yeah, that's how I want to be. This man was a perfectionist and he absolutely killed it. And look at how successful Steve Jobs was because he was a perfectionist. Listen, Steve Jobs was a perfectionist, yes. He also wasn't a very nice person. And he wasn't somebody who was very happy either. He did not live a fulfilled life. And you might come at me for that and say, hold on a second, Ryan. How dare you talk about Steve Jobs that way? Listen, it was pretty well documented that Steve Jobs wasn't a very happy person. Go out and read all the biographies. Read it yourself. I've read them. I've read a number of them. And he wasn't a very happy person. So I'm telling you, stop valuing perfectionism. Start valuing productivity. That's something that Peter Bregman talked about in a previous episode of the Cut the Crap Show. Value productivity, not perfectionism. Because in your desire to be a perfectionist and to achieve perfection, you're really slowing down. And speed is not on your side. And a lot of the times you're doing it based out of fear because you're scared that, oh my God, it's not going to be good enough. Or we can always do better. We can always do more, as Kate said. Nah, I value productivity over perfectionism. And that's something that you all should try to short-circuit your brain on. So before we moved on to the next fear habit, I had to ask Kate a little bit more about defeating this perfectionism. So if you work with somebody who's a perfectionist, or if you yourself struggle with perfectionism, 
What can you do to help combat that? How do we look at this differently? How do we change our perspective on that? Hmm. Well, with any of the fear routines, and this is, I suppose, something I should say is really central to my work. You know, fear is not bad. Mm. Like we're taught to pathologize it. We're taught that it's weakness. We're taught all kinds of things about how we're supposed to, as I mentioned before, ignore it, placate it or attack it into going away. But I think that when fear or those internalized critical voices of perfectionism or any other kind of internalized voice comes up, we need to look at it instead as a wound. And the more that you come into relationship with something and understand something and even come to accept something, despite the fact that it might be limited in some way, the easier you will have, uh, the easier time you will have being with that something. And, um, you know, there's a lot of talk in self-help about unconditional self-love. And I don't think that you really can practice unconditional self-love or positive self-regard if you're going, I'm going to love myself. But, you know, not this place over here, this this fear critic thing that can go, you know, F off. I'm tired of hearing it. Shut up. It doesn't work that way. It is part of you. It is a wounded part of you. And anything that is wounded just wants to heal. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to kick it away, we need to heal it. And sometimes I'll use the metaphor of thinking about a small child, okay? If you had a small child that was throwing a temper tantrum, uh, you know, because it was afraid and it didn't understand, you know, the the magnitude of the emotions ex- it's experiencing, which is very true of small children, mm-hmm. what would be a great way to, to deal with that small child? Throw it in a closet and ignore it? <laughs> well, that would be child abuse. Uh, placate it endlessly to try to set it up for life where it never experiences disappointment. Well, you know, again, in the short term, could work. Here's a lollipop, but man, that's going to really not be in that child's best interest long term. Attack it, hit it, tell it to shut up. Well, again, we're back to child abuse. When we practice abuse towards ourselves, we are becoming the abuser. We've got to stop abusing ourselves and we've got to stop doing this thing where we are afraid to call a thing a thing. Mm. It is abusing ourselves to tell ourselves to shut the F up when we're afraid. It is, you know, you wouldn't speak that way to your boss. You wouldn't speak that way, hopefully, to small children, even though you could get away with it with small children. You shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So why would you speak that way to yourself? And I'm not saying that this means that when fear shows up, we just go all kumbaya with it and, you know, rub some crystals together and it's all good. (laughs) In the same way, you know, if I I mentioned I have a small child in the same way that, you know, if my my kiddo were were tantruming, I wouldn't lock her in a closet, but I would for sure not let her hit me or hit other people. So it's an acknowledgement of what's happening, I'm afraid, with boundaries and The fear does not get to make the decision about the next move that I make. Now, that was a really cool perspective that I never looked at. Looking at these habitual fear routines as wounds. Looking at somebody who is a perfectionist, somebody who values perfectionism, that is a wound. Or you might be critical of yourself and everyone around you. You might try to camouflage aspects of yourself while overperforming, quote unquote. You know, you perfectionists, you often set incredibly high standards that even you have a difficult time attaining. And you might look at others and expect others to have those high standards as well. But what are you afraid of? And you might laugh at me. 
Perfectionists who truly believe that perfectionism is a good thing, you will laugh at me. And we will have to debate this back and forth. And we might have to agree to disagree. And you might just have to continue going on your way and believing that perfectionism is the way to go. And so be it. But the idea of looking at something as perfectionism as a wound really changed my perspective on what it was and almost allowed me to act more with empathy towards those who are perfectionists because people who are perfectionists, they're not easy to work with. They're really tough to work with. But when you start to look at them as wounded, all of a sudden now empathy starts to reveal itself. So that's a really big takeaway that she shared with me that I'm going to use moving forward when I work with perfectionists who are really tough to deal with. And maybe you can do the exact same thing as well. Then in case we've talked about the perfectionist routine quite a bit, now let's get into the next habitual fear routine, the saboteur. The saboteur is all about being psyched at first about a project, getting really excited. You set that goal, you got that project, you got that initiative going, but all of a sudden, what happens? You falter before you complete it. Okay. So saboteur, I mean, all of these, I suppose, could be considered self-sabotage. But in particular, saboteurs have a lot of trouble making progress forward. It's very two steps forward, one step back. You know, I saved some money for so long, so I'll I'll binge on spending. I I was so great with my diet, so hey, you know, let's bring on the sugar. So it, there's a lot of shiny object syndrome, things not holding their interest for long periods of time, trouble making commitments. Um, a, a big one I hear about is, um, and this I think is important for entrepreneurs, is it's a it's a saboteur move to decide that you've got this great idea for a business or a book or some big vision and then go tell the most absolute negative wet blanket person who's not at all going to be supportive and who's only going to talk your ear off about how it's not the right time and the economy and da 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 um, a lot of putting forth uh, small efforts and then expecting big returns and being sort of disgruntled when it's like, why didn't that work out for me? It's like, well, it didn't work out for you because <laughs> you need to be you know, doing it longer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> over time, consistent results over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's one way that the saboteur routine can come up. And, you know, to tie it to perfectionism so far, we've covered, tie it to, you know, self-sabotage. There's this cue of fear. I'm intimidated by this big goal. Perfectionism. I'm going to overwork my way to success. Mm. Reward. I'm in my comfort zone of trying to control it through overwork. But, of course, that's not the long-term reward. Saboteur. I feel fear about this great business idea routine, self-sabotage. Let me go talk to this person who's basically never supportive about this idea. And then I feel all deflated, but now at least the intimidation of going after my big dream has gone down a bit. Ah, Self-sabotage. It's a very real thing and very dangerous on your path to trying to achieve your goals. And for everybody that I work with on teaching you the CY8 method, and if you are interested in learning the CY8 method, then all you got to do is go to the Patreon page and you can sign up for that. And you and I will work together every single week on helping you understand the CY8 method and helping you essentially achieve your goals. But one of the first thing we do, kind of a little ad there in the middle, hey? But anyways, one of the first things that we do is we set goals. And for some of you, when we set those goals... Immediately, you're like, oh, man, it's going to take me so long. Will I be able to do this? I don't know if I'm going to have the support. And all this negative self-talk is self-sabotage presenting itself. And you really have to recognize when you are doing that. Because I think a lot of the times, 
you are sabotaging your ability to be successful. And that's really hard. Making excuses, saying, oh, I'm worried about what people are going to say, or I'm worried that I'm not going to look good, especially when it's maybe marketing related and you're trying to build a business or you are trying to improve yourself. One of the biggest ways that you are sabotaging yourself is worrying what everybody thinks about you or worrying about what people are going to say about you. I get it. It's very human. And I do that too. The very beginning of the episode, when I started talking about posting that video, one of the reasons why I didn't want to post that video is because I was afraid what people were going to think about it. But I had to short circuit that part of my brain and move forward regardless. But you can only do that once you recognize self-sabotage and you start to deal with it day by day. So now we move on to the third habitual fear routine. I got to go through these a little bit faster now. This one is the martyr routine. So instead of working on your own goals or your own needs, you focus on others. You're a people pleaser. Ah, we've talked about people pleasing before on the show, huh? (laughs) Yeah. With the martyr routine, we're really talking about people pleasing and, um, I mean, it can come from family, expectations family has of you to show up in a certain way, to not shift or change in in ways that make them uncomfortable or that would require them to look at themselves. It can also show up with excessive service to uh, your job. I mean, I've definitely met a lot of entrepreneurs who um, by nature tend to be pretty high achieving people and they are used to being the person at their salary job that the boss can count on to take on the extra work, stay late for the meeting. And then when they have their own side hustle, they're trying to get up off the ground. They feel really weird about having to say no to things. Mm -hmm. And it feels, um, you know, they don't want to disappoint other people. And then also part of it is a self-conception and a self-identity. They like thinking of themselves as being the person that everybody can count on. They get a little high out of that. Mm -hmm. So many people want to save the world, but nobody wants to save themselves. And it's time you start to focus on yourself and stop focusing on everybody else. Because like Kate said, it's mental sugar. You get a mental high off of being that person that helps everybody else. And listen, you can help everybody else, but you have your own problems in life. Nobody's problem free. So focus on your own life. Yes, help other people. Absolutely. But don't help other people at the expense of your own problems and not helping yourself. So important. And I really love that one because, again, it's very real. And I know a lot of people who are listening to this right now, who I know are religious listeners to the show, who are doing this exact same thing. So I'm talking to you. Stop focusing on helping everybody else and start focusing on helping yourself. It's going to make your life so much better. And the short-term sugar, the short-term rush you get off of helping somebody else, it always fades away. At the end of the day, when you're sitting in bed by yourself, you have that dissatisfaction of where your life's at. It's because you keep focusing on everybody else. Start focusing on yourself. All right, now for the last habitual fear routine, we have the pessimist routine. And I love talking about this one because I love going to battle with the pessimist. (laughs) Okay, pessimist routine, hardest one for people to claim. So, you know, my invitation for anyone listening is if I've said we all do all of them, but usually one's a bigger hook. If you're having any revulsion around the pessimist routine, um, 
you know, dive into that one extra hard because there's probably something to look at there. Mm. Um, pessimist routine is the kind of like, well, you know, like why bother? Be realistic. Hmm. Well, there I would, but there's no time. Pessimist routine is the person who, like, um, if you've ever been talking to them and they're they're talking about X, Y, and Z in their life that isn't going well, and then suddenly like the dream solution falls into their lap. Like maybe they hate their job mm. and then suddenly they get an offer for a new job and then they're like well but I'd have to change my commute and you know it's not on the way to my kid's school and you're sitting here going it's the job you wanted and it's more money and you've been complaining for a year you know like you're just like and here's the thing compassion okay because that person is someone who is really stuck in their fear and none of us are immune to that so you know it's feeling low-grade resentment or anger um, being passive aggressive, you know, sometimes the people, you know, like I said, the, the saboteur who might go ask a negative person for their feedback on the new job idea or the new entrepreneurial idea, you know, probably that, that negative person or that person who's behaving negatively is stuck in their own pessimistic routine about what is possible. Mm. Um, and I will say also, you know, perfectionism is my my number one go to. But whenever I hit burnout, I slide right on into home base with pessimism. <laughs> we curl up together and we're like, I knew it wouldn't work. I worked so hard. I burned the midnight oil and I didn't hit my target. You know, mm-hmm. that whole thing starts. So like I said, lots of compassion. Find yourself in this routine, because if you aren't willing, able to see it clearly, it's totally going to control you. Um, so that's what that one will look like. And we've all been there. I want to share with you something about the CY method that I try to unlock for every single one of my clients. And it's hope. And the pessimist routine is something that kills all hope. You want to lose weight, but all of a sudden you start to think that you can't do it anymore. You want to get out of debt, but then you start to think that, oh, it's going to be too tough. You want to get that brand new job? Ah, it's going to be too tough. I'm not going to be able to do it. You want to start that side hustle? Ah, it's going to be a lot of work. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. That pessimist voice, that routine is so big in so many of your minds. And I'm trying to shut that voice up by trying to unlock hope, get you excited about the future. And a lot of times, going back to golden nugget number one, you have to paint that picture for yourself. Or even going back to episode 122, Success Through a Positive Mental Attitude by Napoleon Hill. Trying to draw what that future state looks like. Trying to figure out what that future looks like so you can get excited about it. So you can unlock hope. Because hope acts as a shield against negativity. Against some of the demons that come your way. Guilt, learned helplessness, anxiety. Because when you have hope, man, hope is so powerful. And I cannot stress that enough. A big part of goal setting is just giving you hope for the future. It's my job to keep that hope alive and to quiet the pessimist routine. So I just wanted to share that with all of you, that if you do find that you have that pessimist routine, you got to know that you're giving up hope. And that's a double whammy. It's very, very difficult to deal with. So I really, really love the fact that we talked about that. And I'm just happy that I had an opportunity to talk a little bit more about hope is part of that process of building your life. All right, so now we get into the meat of this. This is what this book is all about. We're cracking into the courage habit, and there's four aspects to the courage habit, and we're going to crack right into it with the very first aspect of the courage habit, access the body. 
What does she mean by this? Fear isn't logical, right? Like we, we all can make our lists when we're afraid of like the reasons why we probably, if we take that vacation, even though we have a lot of deadlines, are still going to be able to pay our bills and it's going to be fine. No one's bleeding, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. But then we, we do it anyway. We go into fear. We need to slow down. Fear is not just logical. It's primal. We feel it in the body. So we need to deal with it in the body. And you can deal with it in a lot of different ways, okay? Like for some people, meditation, mindfulness-based practices, that's their go-to. Now, there are absolutely other people where it's like if I'm, you know, like I really access the body and cathart some of my fear and process when I'm slamming around the barbells and CrossFit. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be a big ohm, but some way of really being conscious I am stuck in fear right now. I, I, you know, maybe it's like hitting the end of a work day and going, I have been people pleasing all friggin' day <laughs> and just going, I, I, I have to interrupt that routine now and I have to do something different. So whether I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to just kind of like do a, a laughter thing, look up laughter yoga on YouTube sometime, you can do that. Doesn't matter, but get something that gets you into your body. Now, we've talked about this before on the show. Your physiology determines your psychology. So if your head is down, your shoulders are slumped, you know, you're kind of just hanging over, you look very weak, you're going to feel weak, you're going to feel scared. So change your body to change your mind. And I know this for myself. When I was growing up and coming up in business, I was scared to make presentations. So I changed my body. I become very aware of it. How was I holding myself? How was I carrying myself? What was I doing beforehand? Like Kate said there, clanging and banging those dumbbells. I love going to the gym when I get scared, when I get anxious, when I feel sad. I put music on my ears. I get in the gym. I feel strong. I drain my body of the fear. When you're given a presentation, how do you feel beforehand? Are you scared? Are your shoulders back? Is your head held high? Your chin up? Are your arms kind of in the Superman stance? Are you feeling good about yourself? Listen, kind of a little bit of the fake it before you make it kind of thing. Right? You trick your mind by telling your body what to do and your brain's going to be like, wait a second, you're scared, but you're not, you don't look scared. And eventually your mind starts to catch up with your body. Tony Robbins talks about this all the time. That whole aspect of physiology determines your psychology. He talks about the Superman pose or how you walk. So for example, if you're walking into a room and you feel a little bit scared, think about yourself holding up a cape. What do you have to do to keep that cape flowing? You have to walk with assertiveness. You have to keep your shoulders back, your head held high, arms swinging, long strides, steps. That's a confident walk. When you walk confident, you're going to feel confident. You might not feel that way right away, but if you keep doing it, all of a sudden you're going to start to feel confident. So again, understanding the body is one way to help you build that courage habit. So now let's move on to the second one. Listening without attachment. Okay. So this is a big takeaway for people. I have not found anywhere in my research into like dialoguing with internal narratives. You know, there are so many therapeutic modalities that are about, you know, looking at what we think inside. What is that voice saying? I have not found anything so far that says try to ignore it. So basically, these strategies of trying to ignore fear, they don't work. Hmm. So we need to listen to what fear is saying, but without being attached to what it's saying. That's kind of like the example I gave earlier of you can hear it, 
but you don't let fear make your next move for you or or you don't take on what the fear is saying as though it is truth you are detached from it and another example i'll sometimes give is that listening without attachment could be something like if you're walking down the street and someone who is heavily intoxicated comes up to you and says, you've got blue hair, you've got blue hair. <laughs> you would hear the words. You might even be bothered by the fact that someone was speaking to you in a way that didn't feel good to you. So it's not about numbing out, but you don't attach to it. You, you don't actually believe that the drunk person mm. saying you have blue hair is telling the truth. You're not like, oh God, I must have blue hair. <laughs> you know, you, you, you listen, but you're not attached to what he is saying. You're not doing anything in life based on what this guy is saying to you, right? <laughs> it's the same thing with fear. And that is absolutely a skill that you can learn. And sometimes the other example I'll use that um, helps people to see it as a reference point is how you take in feedback. Mm. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of corporate training attention on how to give employees feedback and how employees can receive and then utilize feedback. And it's like, how do you not take it personally? Mm. How do you take in the feedback, but not make it mean something about you? This one's a really tough one to understand because to listen to your inner critic requires you to be very self-aware and to separate yourself from those inner voices is really hard. You have to realize that those inner voices, they're not right. And you shouldn't be listening to them. But you know what? They're not your enemy, but they're not your friend. You got to be indifferent about those voices in your head. And you got to understand why you're thinking those thoughts in the first place. And are those thoughts helpful to you or are they harmful? It's very, very difficult to do. And it's something that maybe I, I, I don't quite understand and I need to continue to work on. But I know when I always say, you know, the CY8, when you wake up in the morning, you wake up at a five. The first thoughts that you think will either determine whether you go down to a four, three, two, one, or whether you go to a six, seven, or eight, right? The first actions you take, the first thoughts you think, the first thoughts you think, that's the inner voice in your head. Hey girl, hey guy, go back to bed, man. It's going to be way better that way. Don't start the day. It's going to be really stressful. Think about what those voices are telling you. Maybe even write them down, make them real. And question, why do I think this? Is this something that's helping me or is this hurting me? Is there a reason I'm thinking this? And take note of all those voices in your head that are talking to you. Why am I thinking this on a regular basis? Am I continually thinking the same thing over and over again? And why am I thinking about that? Should I deal with this? How can I deal with this? It requires you to become very self-aware. And this one is very, very hard to do. Very hard to do. And I, I personally, I have never done it myself. But now that Kate's kind of provided this stimulus for us, I'm going to do this more frequently. When I first wake up in the morning or if I'm in a presentation, if I'm just going throughout my day driving and I start thinking thoughts that maybe bring me down to a lower level. For example, if I follow the CY8 method, I'm at my six and all of a sudden I start to think thoughts that bring me down to a a five or a four. I got to take note of that. Hey, hold on a second. What thought did I just think? What did my inner critic just share with me that brought me down? Why did I think that? What is forcing me to think that right now? And what can I learn from this? How can I change this? It's really about becoming very self-aware about the thoughts you have in your mind and the thoughts that your inner critic is sharing with you. 
But now let's move on to the third aspect of the courage habit. The third aspect that we have here is reframing limiting stories. And I love this one. We talked about this one on the episode with Emily Esfahani Smith. And uh, this one's one of my favorites. I'm talking literally, and this is reframing limiting stories. It's used in acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, narrative therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, lots of them. Research shows that it's effective. And it's like this. You're listening without attachment to your fear, right? And your fear is probably going to say some stuff that sounds pretty scary. So what do you do with it? You reframe the limiting story. So if your fear is saying, there's no way you're going to be successful at this. A reframe is not necessarily, I'll be a millionaire tomorrow. And by the way, I'm capable of having multiple orgasms. Okay. <laughs> like it, it doesn't, ha- like we're not leaping from one to like a 10 million. All right? right. It's more like I, there's no way you're capable of this to someone out there somewhere has been capable of this before. Maybe I could learn from them. Mm-hmm. And then that, you know, it's like one lily pad at a time mm-hmm. that you're hopping to. And then it's, well, you know, I'm willing to at least try. It would be a well-lived life mm-hmm. if I, you know, spent it in service to trying to make this happen. Yes. You know, or then if it's like you couldn't handle the disappointment. I'm sure there's some way, somehow, that I could handle the disappointment failure. Mm-hmm. So that is reframing limiting stories. Now, as we're talking about stories, I had to ask Kate because I was very interested in just understanding what the hardest story was for people to reframe. Well, the ones that I, I think are hardest for people to reframe um, are often ones that are about circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that those are the hardest is because, like, if you don't got the money, you don't got the money, right? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, people go, well, like, I'm looking at my bank account. I don't got the money. And, you know, that is the place where it's like, okay, the reframe is about even if I don't have some kind of circumstance that I absolutely need, the commitment to trying, the commitment to moving in that direction is more important to you than than anything else. And an example I'll give of that is – uh, many, many years ago, I, I got it in my head that I wanted to spend the summer. This is, of course, pre-kids. Um, <laughs> although that's a limiting story that it occurs to me now. I need to probably spend some time reframing. I love that. Um, but I got it into my head that I wanted to spend the summer um, going all around, traveling all around Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, how am I going to afford this? This is prior prior life, and I was a, a, a school teacher, and they don't make a lot of money, and I live in San Francisco Bay Area, and you know, on and on. And, um, but I just was like, somehow, some way there's got to be a way to afford this. And I ended up couch surfing my way all over, you know, London and UK and Italy and France. And that was all well and good. But here's what I thought was the best. I suddenly, it suddenly occurred to me that if I could get a gig writing travel articles for a publication about my travels, Mm. I might also be able to get media accommodations at some hotels and let me tell you, it cost me no money. And I ended up staying at this gorgeous hotel um, on the Italian coast that was like 1,200 euro a night, champagne chilled in an ice bucket upon yes. my arrival. And all I had to do to stay there was, you know, go there, interview some of the hotel staff, take photos, and write up about my experience for Unreal. a magazine. 
You know, things can happen basically when we are willing to go, even if it seems impossible, I'm willing to try to find a way. Far too many of us are telling ourselves stories that discourage us. The story that you tell yourself can either discourage you or empower you. Choose the story that empowers you for crying out loud. Why would you tell yourself a story that discourages you? What benefit does that have? The problem is we just don't know how to reframe that story. And so something I love that Kate shared with us was changing how we look at that story. So let's say, for example, you're in debt. I want you to reframe that by saying, instead of saying to yourself, I'm in debt, I want you to say, in this moment, I'm in debt. But I'm determined to change that. You can do that for absolutely anything, whether it's financial related, relationship related, health related, professional related, it doesn't matter. In this moment, I am working in a job that I don't like, but I'm determined to change that. Again, we've talked about this on previous episodes. Be the leading lady or man of your story. Far too many of you are acting like the supporting cast. Be the leading character in your story. Realize that life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. Look at life as a setup waiting to happen, not a setback. What philosophies? How do you change your language? What do you surround yourself with that helps you reframe the story that you tell yourself? Right now, you might be in the middle of your comeback story. This is what we talked about with that episode with Emily S. Fahani-Smith. I shared with you the comeback story. You might be in a hellhole right now. But guess what? You're in the middle of your comeback story. And that might sound corny to you, but I don't think so. I've had many comeback stories in my life, and I guarantee you I'm going to have a lot more coming up in the future. Because while life is fun, life is also hard. And when it's hard, what does it say? When the going gets tough, the tough gets going? Yeah. When life gets hard, you have to pick your socks up and you have to get hard too. You have to be resilient. You have to be mentally tough to move forward. So there's all these different things that I've shared with you today, but again, it comes down to reframing that story. Tell yourself a story that empowers you, not discourages you. And the last piece to the courage habit here, reach out and create community. And if you go all the way back to episode 100, when we talked to Dan Pink about his book, When, Dan Pink talks about the importance of community and how community helps you live longer. But now we're talking about destroying fear building your courage. So how can reaching out and creating community do that for you? I mean, community, God, the research on the importance of social ties is so huge. Um, it's tied to everything from your immune system to living longer to, you know, financial success, all kinds of things. But one of the biggest reasons why I think reaching out and creating community is so important is because we all have blind spots. And I, I talk about that in The Courage Habit. I share about uh, an experience I had had, a perceived failure that I had had, and then I happened to be hanging out with a friend of mine, and she completely pointed out to me something that I had not even remotely been considering that had me go, this was not a failure. This was actually very good. I can learn from it. I can try again next time. Mm. So reaching out and creating community, vitally important. And by the way, it doesn't have to actually be in-person community. The listeners of your podcast, like you, Ryan, you are part of their community because you are someone who is 
offering them, and even if you've never met them in person, a, a social tie right. to information, to support, to connection, saying, here's what's possible for you. And reaching out and creating community is is also indicated in the research. This was another fun finding that it, it isn't just if you have a wider community, you're more likely to hit your goal. But when they have interviewed people about how satisfied they were about the entire process of making it from, you know, zero to 10, hmm. getting to wherever they're trying to get to, people enjoyed themselves more along the way. So there are so many valuable reasons for why reaching out and creating community is so vital and important. A big piece to creating courage and fighting fear is surrounding yourself with people who lift you up. And again, as Kate said, it doesn't even have to be people in your own personal network where you see them face to face. It might even be the people that you surround yourself with on YouTube, on podcast format. Myself, I am a part of your community. You tune in to me when you need some inspiration. You tune in to me when you need some education, when you want to learn how to build mental toughness, resilience. You want to consider me a friend in your network? Then damn it, you do that. I've always told you, you can always reach out to me. Always reach out to me and let me know what's going on in your life. I want you to. I want you to consider me a part of your network. So if you're looking for somebody to help build you up, to help you fight fear, I'll be that person for you. So if you have nobody... You now have somebody. But I truly love that one. Who you surround yourself with, they will either bring you up or bring you down. If you consider it in the, the aspects of CY8 method, you either will move up or down based on who you surround yourself with. People can drag you down with them or people can lift you up. Choose to be around the people who lift you up. And it's time to start saying goodbye to the people who drag you down. Friends, family, colleagues, peers, doesn't matter. Start to spend less time with those people and more time with the people that bring you up. But that, my friends, that is a wrap. That is the courage habit. How to accept your fears, release the past, and live your courageous life. Again, this is such an important book to help us understand how to beat the demon of fear. And fear is something very real. That in the context of CY8 will prevent you from moving up to a 6, a 7, or 8. And it will definitely pull you down. To a four, three, two, one. Fear is very dangerous, very tricky, and we have to do our best to arm ourselves with the weapons to help defeat it. If you love this episode, then please, especially if you're listening on an iPhone or an iPad or your Mac, if you're listening on an Apple device, then please go to the podcast app, go to the shows, find the Cut the Crap show, scroll up and give this bad boy five stars if you feel I'm worthy of five stars. A rating and review means so much to me. So thank you in advance for all of you who do that. That truly means a lot to me. Don't forget to connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Always important that you do that. I want to be connected to you again. I, like I just said, if I'm not a part of your community that, yet, then allow me the opportunity to be a part of your community. Let me be somebody who can support you, bring you up. And last but not least, if you love what I'm doing here and you love the kind of content I'm putting out, if I'm adding value to your life, then consider becoming a patron of the show. Go to the CutTheCrapShow.com and hit that big red button at the very top and you can become a patron of the show for $5 a month. And for $5 a month, you'll support me, you'll support my causes that I'm helping out and we're going to do a lot of good in the world. But at the same time, I'm going to be sending you daily text messages first thing in the morning when you wake up so that when you wake up, you're going to read a text message from me and it's my hope that that will be just enough to bring you up from a 5 to a 6 and just to inspire you 
give you something to look forward to. And just know there's someone out there who's supporting you and trying to do my best to bring you up in life. But that is a wrap, my friends. So thank you again so much for your attention today and for tuning in. It truly means a lot to me that you do that. I'll catch you back here next week. We have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And of course, every single week I'm here just trying to save you a little bit of time, bring you some information that could spark change in your life and helping you build mental toughness and resilience. That's what I'm here doing every single week for you. I hope you all have a fantastic, inspired, productive week. I love you all. I didn't have no motivation to do it. Zero motivation to do anything. Zero motivation to have a shave, zero to brush your teeth, even have a shower, nothing. I can't tell you in words how I felt, how down I was. When you lose control of your own mind, you're in a bad place. I just wanted to show the world that if mental health could bring somebody as big as me and as strong as me and, you know, the stereotype heavyweight champion of the world to my knees, then it could bring anybody to the knees. And I thought to myself, if I can show the world that you can come back from it and to get back in shape and get back to the top, then anybody can do it. I knew something was wrong with me my whole life. Growing up as a child, I'd feel a loneliness even when I was with other people. I wasn't a confident character what you see today. I was a very shy, reserved, skinny little whippet kid. I was always told that I couldn't do stuff and, and I'd never do anything, I'd never achieve anything, so that made me worse, basically. I've experienced the highest highs and the lowest lows in life. Something I'd worked for my whole life and when I finally achieved it, it was like, oh well, that was a lot of rubbish. I wasn't expecting now to feel like this. Like I said to you before, I just felt like a, an emptiness, a deep, gaping hole of nothing. Darkness and grey clouds. Every day was grey. I felt like I had nothing to look forward to. I was worthless. It was just a horrible, horrible feeling that people need to understand that many, many people are in the same boat. They don't have to be very successful sports athletes to feel like this. Anybody from day to day has the same feelings. What does it all mean? What does being a world champion really mean? But what I was trying to say was, what does it all really mean when I'm not well on the inside? I was in a position of power. I had glory, fame, achievements, money, a family, all earthly assets that one could want. But it meant nothing, so they couldn't understand why it would this man feel like this. The repetitive thinking, the same stuff day in, day out, and it won't go away. And the more I'm trying to think, right, I want to be positive, negative, 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 negative. And everyone I was around was getting negative too because I was putting it on them. This went on for 18 months of me battling my own self every day, drinking, abusing my body, eating rubbish, taking drugs. Everything I stood for didn't matter anymore. I'd never ever experienced anything in my whole life, even though I'd had anxiety before. This was the king daddy of all anxiety attacks. This was, I was so sure I was going to die, but nothing mattered. I didn't care. All I wanted was, was atonement for my sins. I can't tell you in words how I felt, how down I was. 
When you lose control of your own mind, you're in a bad place. And it's a silent killer. It's almost like carbon monoxide, poison. You can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't feel it. But you die. The way I explain mental health is you bottle up and bottle up and bottle up and then it just explodes. You can't, you can't bottle anymore. And that's, that's when you're having your, your bad times. And I was drinking every day, something I'd never done in my life, to try and wash me uh, sorrows away. But it didn't it come to a stage where, I, oh, oh, well, that's one way of doing it, but I'm going heavier and heavier. I was gaining 380, 390, 400 pounds, and I was very unhealthy. I didn't fit in anything I owned anymore. It wasn't me anymore. I had, I had two bodies. Turning point was, I went out Halloween dressed as a uh, skeleton in a fancy dress party. I went out about nine o'clock and I expected to stay out all night and get smashed. I had one drink. I looked around me and I thought, what am I doing? I'm, I'm back normal again now, yeah? I'm back like thinking straight. Still drinking, but I'm thinking sensible again. And I called out to my wife, I said, Paris here. She said, what? I said, tomorrow. I said, I start to turn my life around. I said, I promise you. I said, I'm going to do it. I'm definitely going to do it. From that day, I got my tracksuit on in the morning and I was going to run two miles. I got about 200 yards and stopped. And I thought, right, I can't, I can't run. I've run all my life. I've always been a very good runner. And I got 200 yards and I was totally gone. I could feel my belly moving on them. It wasn't like a fat like jelly, it was like solid brick. It was, it was a horrible feeling. I thought, okay, I'm gonna walk the rest, and I walked. And, and every day I'd go out on the canal and I'd do a little run in my sweatsuit. And every day I'd get a little bit further until I was doing four or five mile again. And then I'd come back and I worked my way back and we worked repetitively, day in, day out, day in, day out. And at that time I was still sleeping with the light on. I couldn't sleep in the dark. You need to stimulate the mind. And I think training is a perfect way to do it. Working out, exercising. Whether you can do a lot or a little, you must do something. I give myself short-term goals and long-term goals. And I plan things more now. Where if, if I've just not got anything on the horizon, I, I tend to wander and my mind goes able. But when I've got something on planned and I've got things going and I want to do this, this and this, even if it's, you don't, it doesn't have to be big things. It can be small, tiny goals that mean something to you as a person, as an individual. I'm very, very sure that working out and having a routine in your life is, is, is the answer for mental health problems. I want you to know that every day for two years was very grey and dark for me. But it will come back great again. You will have sunshine days again. Rose-coloured days, warm by the sun.